Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, uh, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. I also want to welcome you and reiterate again, if you missed it uh, early on in service, we do have two services next week, so there will be room, we do hope. If you're joining us this morning, as many of you are, we're coming near the end of our summer series on the book of, uh, a particular part of the book of Genesis, as we've been looking at the life of Abraham. And as we've talked about Abraham, we've talked about the series in this way, that Abraham shows us a picture of what it means to live in light of God's promises. That is what Abraham is always receiving from God, his promises, and he's learning to walk by faith with his God, trusting in what God is doing in his life. And this uh, morning we come to Genesis chapter 19. If you'd like to be turning there, you'll find that on page 13 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. We're actually going to back up a little bit. We'll read verses 20 and 21 from chapter 18, and then we'll read all of uh, chapter 19. First, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears that we might hear your word. Lord, we are in a special need of your grace and of your attention this morning as we look at what is going to be a very difficult passage of Scripture. Yet it is what you have for us here this morning. You've put it here for us because we need it, because we need you and our and then chapter 19. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether... Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of... My lords, please turn aside your servant's house. Spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out. Wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, The fellow who came to sojourn, and he now has become the judge. Now we will deal with The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So the Lord went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. And what grew on All the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he, built, he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And thus both, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He was a father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is a father of the Ammonites to this day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Everybody, everyone has heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, whether you've ever set foot in a church or not, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah has made its appearances uh, in The Simpsons. Uh, in last year's movie, Year One, shown up in songs by Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, and Kiss comes up in books, it's in our cultural vocabulary, and it is a picture, frankly, of God's awful judgment. Uh, one of my kids this morning, we were, we were talking as we were getting ready for church, and my, my wife Elizabeth said, Daddy's preaching on Sodom and Gomorrah today. And I said, do you, do you know what Sodom is? And what happened? And our child said, he had to wreck it down. And that's what happens in the story today. You've heard about fire and brimstone preaching. Well, that phrase comes from the King James Version of this very story here in Genesis chapter 19. And it appears other places in the Bible too. This is truly a fire and brimstone passage. And so this is a fire.
and in, until this week. And as I, I read it, I, I was just sobered by what a uh, powerful and um, graphic sermon it is. Often, if you've read it in high school or maybe you've read it in college, you're going to, that sermon is often held up as this crazy example of Christian belief that could think God would actually have wrath and throw people into hell. But uh, Jonathan Edwards was deadly serious, and, and truthfully we see in our passage this morning that it is deadly serious as well. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God in 1973, and here's what he had to say about uh, American culture and British culture at that time. He said, the fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise. of the awful judgment of God. And so that means that we're going to do some seriously heavy lifting today. Uh, there's a lot that's going on in this passage, and we're going to try just to say a few things. I'm going to bypass uh, some of the, the specifics of what is going on uh, here in some of its details to, to point to some of the bigger picture of what God has for us here and what he talks to us about in Scripture. So we're going to, we're going to look at these three things in our passage this morning. The justice of of the judgment that comes, the severity of the judgment, and the escape that is offered from this judgment. First, the justice of God's judgment. We talked a little bit last week in, from those verses in chapter 18 where it says that God hears the cry of the oppressed lifting up to heaven. And so he comes down with two of his angels to investigate for himself what is happening. Now, again, you, you read that and it sounds sort of like, well, doesn't God... When the builders of the Tower of Babel raised this huge, uh, this huge building up to the skies to try to be God, and God says, let us go down and see what is happening. Or in the garden when Adam and Eve have sinned, and he walks into the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? In none of these cases does God not know what he's looking for. But he comes personally to meet it face to face. And that's what he does here when he comes down to see with his own eyes what is happening in the city of Sodom. And as we said, as God hears the cry of the oppressed, it is the very fact that God is a loving God that he might bring judgment on the oppressors. One of the things that uh, Abraham says when he comes before God in chapter 25, he, he addresses God this way. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer that's upheld is that God, our judge, our righteous judge, will do what is right. This summer in our adult ed class, we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed, and a few weeks ago, On the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, and from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Scripture teach us that, teaches us that our righteous judge will do what is right and judge rightly. What does God see when he comes down to Sodom and Gomorrah? 
He comes down and we see that in this righteous judgment that he brings, that he has a right, accurate understanding of the facts. He knows what is going on. He has heard the cry of the oppressed. And he comes and sees that it is every bit as bad as the cry that has reached his ears. What's going on in Sodom? Well, primarily what we see on the surface at least is that there is a horrendous sexual crime that is being perpetuated here. Verse 5, the men are banging on the door and they say, let these people out that we may know them. Know them is a a biblical, biblical euphemism for bring them out that we may have sex with them. Now, the sin that is going on here in Sodom and Gomorrah is sometimes presented simply as a sin of homosexuality. Now, the Bible does in fact teach that homosexuality is a sin, but we've got to see that here in chapter 19, something much deeper and darker is going on. It is not simply that. Uh, What we see here is a violent assault, degradation, abhorrent at every level. And it's magnified even here in a culture that puts such an incredibly high premium on hospitality, that you had this almost sacred duty to treat guests well. And here the whole town has come and done exactly the opposite. And they are engaging themselves in this incredibly violent and dark crime. And so that is certainly what is going on here. But it's also interesting to see the way the Bible reflects on this event. Because the Bible brings out in other places other aspects of what's going on here. Here's what it says. And they're saying that you, Jerusalem, you are just like Sodom, your sister. And here's what he says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. You see what what Ezekiel puts his finger on? That they were haughty. That the poor and needy lived in their midst and they would not care for them. That's the broader biblical picture of what is being condemned in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are rejecting and... And here in our passage, we see that they literally reject God as God sends his representatives down to hear what is going on. And they reject them in the most graphic way possible. Now, this picture of judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah becomes actually a paradigm, a symbol, a metaphor for judgment throughout Scripture. Later on in in the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Israel is warned that if they turn away from God's covenant, that they will become desolate like, like Sodom itself. Isaiah 13 says that Babylon, the enemies of Israel, will be like Sodom when God overthrows it. Jeremiah 23 speaks of these false prophets in Jerusalem. He says, the prophets in Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers. Inhabitants like Gomorrah. Zephaniah 2.9 says, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. And then in the New Testament, this same picture is taken up and it becomes a picture of God's judgment and wrath, not only in the moment, but uh, in a picture of his final judgment and wrath. Second Peter 2 says this, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 
And Jude 7 says that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what? And in fact, it's a cultural picture of destruction and judgment yet to come. It's what is going on here in God's just judgment? Second thing we need to see. Of God's judgment. Every man, woman, child, animal, the for Lot and two of his daughters are killed by God's hand. Sulfur and fire raining from heaven, turning even the landscape into a wasteland. The severity of this judgment we see first here, we see a certain posture of God in this judgment, and it is a posture of wrath. Okay, now when we hear that term, when we hear of God being a wrathful God, it somehow sounds beneath God's dignity to us. Or somehow as if it, could, it should apply maybe to some sort of uh, capricious or violent dictator, maybe to the anger of a petty and slighted tyrant, but certainly not to God. Here's how James Boyce pastor uh, defines God's wrath. God's wrath is utterly unlike this. God's wrath is his consistent and unyielding resistance to sin and evil. That's what God's wrath is. His continuing and unyielding resistance to sin and evil. Think about it this way. Because there are some things that God is unalterably committed to, his glory Redeeming and reconciling his people, putting the world back together. World, there are certain things he is going to have to be unalterably committed to eradicating, to bringing his judgment against, to even bringing his wrath against, that he might accomplish his good purposes. I mentioned last week again the cry of the oppressed that reaches God has reached God's ear. In our world, in Sodom, in Gomorrah, in our world now, the violence, the hatred, the oppression, the self-destruction of a world gone so far wrong. can happen in a novel, and one of the main of these is called Man's Inhumanity to Man. The thing that drives so many of our stories in our movies, in our own lives. Why? Because our lives and our world is marked by man's inhumanity to man. And it is God's justice and even his wrath that will come one day and put that inhumanity to man to an end once and for all. You see, God's posture towards all who do not bow the knee, who do not turn to Christ, uh, to all those who come with a hand and a fist held high, his posture to them is wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that outside of Christ, we are so far from being children of God, that rather we are called children of wrath. One, one of the prophets. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Do you know that Jesus spoke about wrath and, in fact, about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament? This comes from Matthew chapter 11. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable. the heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus describes what it will be like when he returns as judge. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, And he will separate people one from another as shepherds separates the sheep from the goats. And then he will separate his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And here's how Revelation 19 pictures Jesus returning as judge. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it in his famous sermon. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would be like that of a whirlwind. And you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. You see, when we come to the Bible, we are a long way away from our cultural jokes about hell. I grew up uh, reading in the newspaper Gary Larson. Often very funny and so very wrong. Why do we mock and rationalize and minimize what the Bible says about hell? And maybe it is because of this that the thought of hell frightens us. And maybe the Bible tells us about it because it should. We see a posture of God, one of wrath, but we also see that those in Sodom, and it is true throughout time and history, that those who receive the wrath of God choose it. 
That those who are in hell, is another way to say it, choose to be there. It's not that people willingly opt for punishment and misery, but they do choose against God. And that means that everybody in this room either at one time was choosing, was choosing to be as far from God as you could be, and God miraculously turned you around and brought you home. Or even today, you are choosing to be as far away from God as you possibly can. Even sitting here in church on a Sunday morning. John chapter 3 puts it this way. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world And the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see what John is saying? That Christ, the light, has come into the world and he has been rejected. Why? Because we love darkness and we choose it. Define God, having God against him, and he shall have his, pre- his preference. Nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose in all its implications. Nothing more and equally nothing less. God's readiness to respect human choice to this extent may appear disconcerting and even terrifying, but it is plain that his attitude here is supremely just and pulls. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, tells the story of uh, a busload of people who are in, lost in hell coming for uh, a visit to heaven. And they're actually offered the chance to stay there, and almost none of them choose it. Here's what Lewis says towards the end of that book. There will be two kinds of people in the end. Those who will say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God will say, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. D.A. Carson says it this way, Hell is full of people who do not want to be there, but who still do not want to bend the knee. For all eternity, they still hate God. They despise the cross. They still nurture sin. They still hate others in this endless cycle of self-chosen sin, iniquity, thanklessness, idolatry, and their consequences. This ongoing sin is so much a part of their stamp and makeup that if they were suddenly transported to heaven, they would hate it. That is the horrible awfulness of it. Ongoing punishment and still, God help us, no repentance. Not ever. That's why the Bible tells us to flee from the coming wrath. John Milton in Paradise Lost maybe put it best on the lips of Satan when he is thrown from heaven. He says this, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. All who find hell have chosen it. It doesn't feel like that. Not right now, not for most people, maybe not for us. Forever. When we come and read the Bible, it's meant to come and bring clarity. It's like walking in uh, to a movie and you sit down and you begin to watch and and everything's a a little fuzzy and out of focus until you finally put on the 3D glasses. 
And then everything zooms into focus. Everything is sharp, and it is right there in front of your face. We are told here to put on the glasses to hear what God tells us in Scripture. You see, if you are building your life around anything other than God, You are worshiping that thing. You are devoting yourself to it. And if that is true, if you are choosing anything over God, then the bent of your heart, unless it is shaken free, will be the bent of your heart for all of eternity. If you're even thinking something like this, I believe as God is real and all that, but right now I'm just, it's just not that important to me. I'll think about it later, maybe when I'm older then even right now you are choosing hell, choosing something other than the presence of God, and that choice is forever. That's the other thing that we see. No more opportunity to repent. No more parole. No reprieve for good behavior. Again, Jonathan Edwards. There's a piece of his sermon that just about undid me this week. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. You will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, Millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty merciless vengeance. And when you have done so, point to what remains, so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances is? And that may well be the case. But God also knows that everything is at stake here, and frankly, there is much to fear. Think about when I take my kids on a bike ride in our neighborhood. They're young. We have to be very careful. We come out into the middle of our driveway, and I turn to my kids and say, gently and lovingly, I warn them to watch out for cars, to stay on the side of the road. But when we're on the road and one of them has zoomed ahead of me and I see a car coming, what do I do? I yell, stop. To frighten them? They'll see the car coming and they will get to safety. You see, I don't yell, stop, because I don't love them. I yell, stop, because I do. And God doesn't warn us of his wrath because he doesn't love us. But actually, he warns us of his wrath because he does. And so what are we going to do? Is there an escape from judgment? One of the most famous sermons in the Bible comes in Acts chapter 2. And Peter is preaching to the crowds on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's been poured out onto the church. And Peter ends his sermon saying this, surely some of the most condemning words that are written anywhere in Scripture. He says to the crowd, You crucified Jesus, the one who is Lord and Messiah. 
said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. How do we escape from the judgment? J.I. Packer puts it this way. The New Testament answer is this. Call put it this way. Therefore, let everyone who is out of Christ now wake and fly from the wrath to come. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. See, the good news for us, brothers and sisters, is that Down. The clouds are gathering, but the storm has not yet hit. And even as God and he saves Lot's daughters. Because Lot is such a sterling and outstanding character. Not a chance. Do you see Lot? As these men come and pound on the door, and what does he say? The betrayal of all betrayals. Take my daughters instead. And as he's snatched out of this literally burning city, where do we see Lot later? The one who once was so rich, had so many herds and cattle and people following him that he and Abraham had to separate just so the land could support them both. We see him living incredible drunken sin with his own daughters. Why was Lot saved? Because God is merciful and gracious. Uh, it says here in, in our chapter, even in verse 29, that God saved Lot by his mercy because God remembered his promise to Abraham. And this promise is one that comes all of grace. You see, God offers mercy and grace to us as well through Christ alone. Listen to these familiar words, but maybe with a different ring to them this morning. Not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You see a little better what John saw, that whoever believes in Christ will not perish, won't receive the judgment and wrath of God, will receive eternal life, forgiven life, restored relationship with God, because Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners like me and sinners like you, sinners like us. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified as he is praying, knowing what is going to happen to him the next day? He says this, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. What cup was he talking about? The cup of God's wrath. Jesus knew what was ahead for him. He was going to take that cup, that cup of God's wrath, and drink it down to the very bottom for his people, for us. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus took on himself the full weight of God's judgment and his wrath. Christ took it on himself, every bit that we deserved, so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be forgiven, so that through his death we would have life. And you see, this is at the very heart of the gospel that we proclaim, that we deserved 
favor poured out on us. And if we don't understand the bad news, the wrath, and the judgment, we cannot possibly understand how rich and how sweet and how good is the good news of Christ. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. The storybook Bible, children's Bible, sums up Paul's speech this way. Nothing can ever, no not ever, separate us from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God that he has showed us in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the gospel, that we flee to Christ, that we are rescued in him, that we are brought close to God, that we are sheltered under his wing and protected from the storm, and we are now set free to know and love God forever, without end, in his presence, beginning even now, as we are in relationship with Christ. Let me just briefly end with two applications. First is simply this. If you are not putting your life in Christ's hands, turning from your sin, then do that now. Don't you see that God's wrath is real? Don't you see that God's love is real? And that he has made a way for you to have life. And secondly... of Christ's salvation to the world around us. To Williamsburg, to our family members, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our hallmates and our roommates, to our campus. Don't you see that this very gospel is the only hope for the world, but it is true hope and it is solid and salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. A number of years ago, a time in life when my brother was turning his back on Christianity, walked away from it in, in some bitterness, and he has since come back. But I remember at that time him telling us that as he walked away from his former Christian friends, how little they did to really come after him and remind him of the truth. And I remember him speaking bitterly of, as someone at that time who did not believe, yet still pointing his finger at the hypocrisy of Christians who say that they believe in the reality of God's judgment and the reality of hell, yet who were doing, as he saw it, so very little to bring that hope and life to the world around them. Don't you see that if we know this Jesus, and if the condition of our world around us and our friends and our town is really that dire, then we must be people who speak and live the good news because it is good news for us and for the world. 
Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with an unusually heavy passage, but it is one you have for us here because your wrath and judgment are real. And we could not bear to read this passage. We could not bear. not true that you have made a way through the crashing ocean of your wrath that you might bring us to safety in Christ because you so loved the world. As we leave this morning, may it be with right soberness, but may it be with right joy because we have a great Savior and a great salvation. And we give you praise.